Well, we will continue our study in Hebrews tonight, so uh, if you will get your handout ready. If you didn't get one, they're there in the middle. Uh, we'll be in Hebrews, continuing on in chapter 4. And uh, as we've been, we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, and so this is part 11 of our Hebrews study, and so we're continuing to journey through Hebrews. Let's see here. And so uh, we finished up, Pastor Tony uh, taught last week on the beginning part of Hebrews chapter 4, and so as we've journeyed through Hebrews, one of the things that we've noticed is a couple of different uh, warnings that the author of Hebrews has given us. And so the first warning we talked about several weeks ago was the warning of drifting. And so the writer of Hebrews is talking to this little church and he is encouraging them to continue on. He's encouraging them that in the face of persecution uh, that they should stand strong in what they believe and, uh, and the fact that Jesus is, in fact, who he says that he is. And that he'll do what he says that he will do. And so the encouragement was don't drift, don't allow these thoughts, uh, don't allow these outside influences to sway you away from what you know to be true. And then a few weeks after that we talked about the danger of doubting and how unbelief can creep in. Even after all the things that God has done for us, uh, that it's often very easy. And the example that he gave was the Israelites from Psalm chapter 95. And how the Israelites had gotten to the edge of the promised land. And after all that God had done from them through the exodus, through the wilderness, through the provisions of moving into the promised land, through the battle victories that they had in Jericho and many others. And they get to the edge of the promised land and they have the opportunity to enter in. But because of doubt, they do not. And so anyone that was over the age of 20... And the Israelites, God said, you're not going to enter into the promised land uh, because of your unbelief. And so the danger of doubting that we can allow drifting to lead us into uh, doubting. And uh, several weeks ago, one of the things that we talked about was how do we stay away from drifting? How do we stay away from doubting? And that's that we encourage each other to stay strong, that we band together. You know, Ecclesiastes said a three-corded strand is not easily broken. And so that we stay together, that we encourage each other. And so we get to Hebrews chapter 4, and last week Pastor Tony uh, talked about in Hebrews chapter 4 the danger of unbelief, that just because you grow up in a, uh, a home that believes in Jesus Christ doesn't automatically automate your faith. Because there is no such thing as automatic faith, that it's individual, that you've got to come to a point in your life where you place your trust in Jesus Christ and you live out the faith that God has granted you. And so uh, the danger is that, you know, with the Israelites, they uh, supposed upon the kindness of God and they expected God to do something for them when in fact they were acting in disobedience and unbelief. And so the author reminds the church that disobedience and unbelief will rob us of the rest that God has prepared for us. And so uh, the week before last and then last week, both Pastor Tony and I spent a lot of time talking about this rest uh, that the Israelites were prevented uh, from inheriting or receiving because of the fact that they disobeyed because God told them what they should do. And so we get to uh, verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 4, and the Bible says, this is on the top of your handout, the Bible says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and uh, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the writer of Hebrews uh, parallels now, we transition, we begin to transition out of this example of the Israelites, and he says, don't, don't, don't allow disobedience to uh, cause you to fall into the trap of falling away from the Lord. And so he states, in, uh, by stating that no one will fall by their own uh, disobedience or by their example of disobedience, he's alluding to Numbers chapter 14. So in Numbers chapter 14, you can just write these references down. Uh, but beginning in verse 39, uh, God promised judgment on the Israelites. And so he told them, because you didn't believe, uh, anyone over 20 is not going to enter into the promised land. He said, Caleb and Logan, uh, Caleb and uh, Joshua, rather, are the ones that are going to enter into uh, the promised land. So in verse 39, this is what he says. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Right? I mean, that's one of those duh moments of, yeah, you messed that one up. And so they finally realized what they had done. And so in verse 40, this is again Numbers chapter 14. It says, They rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And so God instructed them to do something. God had provided everything that they needed. They get to the edge of the promised land. The 12 spies go in. They spend 40 days spying out Canaan. Ten spies come back and say, there's no way we can't do it. They're giants. It's not possible. Caleb and Joshua say, absolutely, we can do it. We have God on our side. And so because of their disobedience, everyone with the exclusion of Joshua and Caleb uh, are not allowed to enter in. And so they realize we just made a giant mistake. And so they said, okay, well, let's go up to the hill country and let's confess our sin. But Moses said in verse 41, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you turned back, you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. So they thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. We know how this goes, God. If we just confess, then you're going to make it all okay. And we failed you before. We've whined in the wilderness about, uh, oh, man, if we were just back in Egypt, it wouldn't be this bad. And then you forgave us, God. And so they began to presume upon the forgiveness of God. And they said, surely he's going to forgive us, even though we disobeyed and we completely turned our back on him. And Moses said, God has already commanded judgment on you. It's not going to work. And so this is what it says, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So many of them were uh, killed that day in this battle. Now they perished how? They perished by the sword. God told them, you are not going to enter the promised land. Wait a minute, God. Wait a minute. Time out, God. We, we are so sorry for that. Uh, we did disobey. We didn't believe you. But now we believe, and we're going to presume that you're going to allow that to just slide under the rug. And so we're going to go now and do what you told us to do. And we're going to expect your blessings on that. And in fact, that didn't happen. And so because of their disobedience, they, they died. They perished by the sword. 
Now, isn't, inter- isn't it interesting now that the writer of Hebrews has been telling us, don't fall into disobedience. Don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Don't presume on the kindness of God. They ended up dying by the sword. And then in verse 12, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So the very sword that caused the Israelites to perish in the wilderness because of their disobedience, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, that sword does not compare to the sword of the word of God. He said, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. That you should, uh, and of course, our parallel for us today is the Word of God. The Word was spoken to them. Uh, God, through Moses, spoke to the Israelites, and so that was their Word of God. And for you and for me, the warning then is that we should obey the Word of God, the spoken Word of God that we have written here in the Bible. And so it is the, uh, what the author is communicating here is that, look, they had Moses to communicate the Word of God to them. You now have the Word of God. You have the written Word of God. And so because of that, we propel forward now 2,000 years, and we say, for us today, the same warning exists, that we shouldn't presume upon the kindness and forgiveness of God, but that we would simply obey that in which God commands us. And so the Israelites criticized God's Word which again was spoken through Moses, instead of allowing the Word to guide them, to instruct them. Now, all this time, I know, again, we look back at the story and we say, how is that possible? Because we look back and we see the wilderness and the wanderings that they spent so many years in the wilderness, and every single day God provided for them. And we look at that and say, how is it possible that God would provide everything that is necessary, and yet people not accept that? Well, look around. Turn on the news. Look at the, the, the world in which we live today and the unbelievable craziness that's taken place in which God has provided everything that we need, and yet there's people that aren't receiving that. And so uh, instead of following the Word of God, many people today spend their time disobeying and criticizing the Word. You see, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, last week we talked about this, says the Word they heard did not profit them. It was not to their benefit, so they thought. And so the Israelites says, well, you know, I'm not really sure that you have my best interest at heart, God. There are giants there. Ten people confirmed it. And so I'm just not really sure if we should do that. And so they chose not to enter into the promised land. And then because of their disobedience, God forbid them from entering And so God, in His mercy for you and me today, as we fast forward to today, we say, well, what is it that God provides for us? We have the Word of God. How is it that God helps us uh, to not fall into disobedience? Well, because of God's mercy, the very thing that He gives us that is required not to fall into disobedience is what? It's the Word of God. How would we know? Romans chapter 7 says that uh, sin uh, was known based upon the law being given. And so how would we know what is an infraction against God or what God would expect of us unless we had a written uh, account of that? And so through the Word of God, we have uh, the information that we need to know what pleases God and what is required of God in order for us to follow Jesus, and so again, you know, there's many, many places that we could point out to say that, but suffice it to say that God in His mercy has given you and me all that we need. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, this is what Paul writes. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so Paul says, look, you received the word of God. Even though we spoke it to you, you received it not just from us, but you accepted it as the word, the written word of God. That it has authority in your life, that it has uh, in inspiration from the Holy Spirit. And so I've got some information that I want to give you as we begin to dive into this part tonight about the Bible. Some of these things you'll probably know, uh, but the Bible is a library of 66 different books. So there are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and there are about 44 different authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that penned the Word of God. Now, it took them about 1,500 years. If you start in the Old Testament and you spring forward into the New Testament, there's a span of time of about 1,500 years in which they wrote the Word of God, that they penned the inspired Word of God. Now, there's many things that we can say about that we'll get into in just a second, but uh, there are multiple opportunities over 1,500 years. I don't know if you have any ancestors from 1,500 years that when you were young, they were alive. Probably not. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. And so you, you have people in your life, you know, who in your family was alive 200 years ago, right? But 1,500 years ago. And so how is it possible that 44 different people can write over 1,500 years worth of information and it be inerrant and that it be collaborative? How is that possible? Well, of the 39 books in the Old Testament, they were written between 1400 and 400 B.C., and so about 1,000 years. And the 27 books of the New Testament were uh, between 50 and 100. And so, you know, John was one of the latest ones written, which we just went through. And uh, we see here that, again, there's about 50-year span. Now, Jesus uh, ascended into heaven in the mid-30s, and so about... 15 or so years after Jesus ascended into heaven, 17 years, we see uh, the first accounts of Jesus in the New Testament. And so we've got this 66 different books uh, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit over 1,500 years. And so what we have is God's vehicle that He uses to reveal Himself. Were it not for the Word of God, what would we know about God? We would know general, general revelation of God, right? We would know that someone created us, that, you know, no one's making new humans, that only God can do that. There's no uh, new earths that are, you know, sprouting up uh, in the universe. And so as Pastor Tony talked about last week, uh, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is within in six days. And then fascinatingly enough, in the seventh day, uh, as you study, and if you'll remember this from last week, on every day of creation, one through six, uh, it says that, uh, and the day, the day one, the day and the night, day two and the day and the night were the second day, and the day and the night were the third day. The seventh day does not say that. It says that God rested. And so the word used in the first part of Hebrews chapter four uh, alludes to sabbatical rest which references back to Genesis chapter 1, where the Bible says that on the seventh day, God rested. If you didn't hear that message, you should go back and listen to it on the website. And so it talks about the fact that God rested from creating. And so creation was complete 
by day seven when God began to rest. And so that sabbatical rest is the rest that the writer of Hebrews is inviting us into, is that we cease to uh, work on our behalf, that we're not creating works. When we become a believer, we are no longer depending upon anything that we have done in order to obtain salvation. But that sabbatical rest that we receive at salvation is where God, we depend upon all that God has done, and we rest from our works of what we expect to be good because all those are rubbish according to the Word of God. And we depend upon the sabbatical rest of God the Father. And so on the seventh, I tell you what, that's good right there. If that didn't light your fire, they say in Jones County, your wood is wet, all right? And so you got to get excited about that. And so we see the fact that God rested on the seventh day. And so because of that sabbatical rest, now we, we are resting in the works of what God has done. Now, we were created for good works, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And so because of that, we know who God is. We have the, re- the revelation of who God is through the prophets and through the gospel accounts and through the testimony of the epistles of Paul. And so Jesus, God reveals himself through the Word of God. And so what the Bible does is it points, the Old Testament's foreshadowing, the New Testament is the presentation of who? It is the presentation of Jesus and so what the Bible does in every moment of opportunity the Bible takes to point us and direct us to who Jesus Christ is. Because why? Because John 14, 6 says that Jesus is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And that no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. And so the entire Word of God points and directs us to Jesus Christ. And so we have the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword that's living and that is active. And so the question that comes up then, and maybe you've encountered, maybe you will encounter, is, well, then what makes the Bible different from other writings? What makes it unique? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's something I love to talk about. There are over 5,000 different manuscripts and portions of the Word of God that have been discovered. Now think about that. There's over 5,000. The most recent discovery was the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was in the late 1940s. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls at at that time, you know, now has become the most recent uh, found copy of the Word of God that helps us to uh, validate, if you will, the earlier copies that were found uh, a few thousand years before. And so the different texts that are used, there's over 5,000 different manuscripts that have been found. What is, why does that matter? Well, because of this, because over 5,000 different fragments and pieces uh, of the Word of God have been found that verify what has been passed down in oral tradition and written tradition. Remember in uh, the fire in Jerusalem in the 70s, uh, destroyed many things. And so as these, uh, as these writings have been passed down and confirmed, over 5,000 different pieces have been found to confirm the fact of what has already been known to be the true Word of God. Well, what does that matter, Pastor Matt? Is, I mean, isn't that what we have on many other books? Well, no. The second closest one is the writings of Homer, and there's only about 600 copies of those. So there's over 5,000 different pieces of manuscripts and portions of manuscripts that verify the Word of God. So what makes it different? It's the most verified writing ever written. Well, number two, by contrast, you know, as I mentioned, there's only about most classical literature has about 20 uh, copies or less. 
Again, the second closest is the writings of Homer, which has 600. So there's 5,000, over 5,000 manuscripts. The second thing is that the gospel accounts are all from eyewitness testimonies. Every single writer of the New Testament, every single writer of the New Testament, every single writer of the New Testament, I want you to get that, every single one of them had an association with Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. The gospel accounts are all eyewitness testimonies of the disciples that were written about people who sat with Jesus when no one else was around. People that were encountering things with Jesus when no one else was around. People that walked with Jesus day in and day out, that had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Even Paul himself on the road to Damascus had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus and he wrote the lion's share of the New Testament. And so we see every single one of the Gospels were eyewitness accounts. Now, again, what makes the Bible different from any other writings? It was an eyewitness account of the things that took place. And so for you... And for me, it is our only source of knowing specific truth about God. If we didn't have John 14, 6, if we didn't have that great question, how will we know the way? And Jesus say, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we didn't have that, then there would be a lot of questions today, right? Well, what is the right way? What is the, what, you know, how should I treat my neighbor? What, what is it that God expects of me? Well, how would we know that were it not for us having the Word of God? And so I want to give you two things tonight about the Word of God that the testimonies of the apostles and the disciples declare about Jesus. Well, number one is that God's Word brings life to those that receive it. What makes the Word of God different? Why is it different than any other writing that's out there? Well, the Word of God brings life to those who receive it. Have you ever read, ladies, have you ever read a Better Homes and Garden or a Cosmetala, whatever, magazine, and it changed your life? You read that and you said, I have to do that. I have to apply that. That is radically transforming me. Or guys, you know, ESPN, the magazine, or, uh, you know, some National Geographic or something. There's no literature that's out there, as good, bad, or indifferent as it is, that will change your life. Only the Word of God has the ability to do that. You see, the word used here, living, means to experience God's gift of life. That through the very words of of the Scripture, that life is imparted to the reader. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. It says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, uh, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. How were you, uh, how did you become a believer? How were you saved? Through the Word of God. Through the Word of God, God planted, the Bible says, the Word of God inside of your heart. And it began to grow through the living and the abiding Word of God. And so God's Word brings life to those who receive it. You see, in every instance in Scripture, everyone who received the Word of God had new life. A couple of examples. So think about the rich young ruler, one of the most popular Uh, examples in the New Testament is this rich young man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him and he said, well, I've been pretty good at what you've said so far. And Jesus said, well, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And he says, well, you know, the Bible tells us that he walked away sad. Why? Because he had great possessions. 
And so he chose not to receive the word of God. So Jesus is standing right in front of him. He had an encounter face-to-face with Jesus. And yet because of him choosing not to receive the word of God, not to believe the words of Jesus, he walked away not receiving it. But the flip side of that is think about those who have received the word of God. There's many examples in Scripture. One of my favorite would be John chapter 4. Jesus is at the, uh, at the well, and there's a woman that's there, and Jesus begins to talk to her, and he begins to tell her everything that she knew uh, that she didn't even know about herself. You know, she says, well, I'm not married, and Jesus said, well, you're right. And so, you know, he began to talk to her about all the things that were happening in her life, and she did what? The Bible says that she left her water pots and that she ran into the town, and what did she say? She said, I just met a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. She declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And because of that, she received the word that God spoke to her, which, by the way, were very hard words for her to receive. It was a confrontation with her sin in her life. And yet she received it. And in receiving that, she began to declare the greatness of Jesus. Now, what happened from that? The Bible says, look at, when you get a chance, go back and read John 4. The Bible says that people began to come out to Jesus because of her testimony. And they said, what? We have begun to believe in Jesus Christ Not only because what you said, but because we've experienced for ourselves. And so they began to experience the Word of God because of the woman at the well who received the Word of God, and it changed her life. That is the same thing that happened to every single person that's in this room that is a believer is that you heard the Word of God, that the Word of God permeated your being, that there was a confrontation of sin in your life with the Word of God, and you received God's Word. And because of that, you received salvation. Your life changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Right? A new creation in Christ. And so God's Word brings life to those who receive it. You see in Hebrews chapter 3, I don't think this is on your handout. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews describes God as the living God. It's not going to come up on the screen. I think I missed that slide. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, the writer of Hebrews describes God as the living God. You see, in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so every single word that is written in the Word of God is breathed out by God. That God has spoken, that it's inspired uh, by the Word of God. And so, what what is that reference? Well, back in chapter 3 and verse 12, the writer describes God as the living God. That He is still alive today. You know, if you're in D group, we're in uh, the latter part of the Gospels. And we've been reading the last couple of weeks about the resurrection. And how they, uh, you know, this morning I read where they went to the tomb. And guess who wasn't in the tomb? Jesus wasn't in the tomb. And the young man was there and he said, hey, Jesus is not here. He is risen. Go tell everyone else. And so we see that Jesus, that God is the living God. And so then we get to Hebrews chapter 4. So he says, Jesus, our God is the living God living God in Hebrews 3.12, then we get to chapter 4, and he says the Word of God is living. And so the Word is spoken from a living Savior to us, which makes the Word of God that is breathed out by God the living Word. 
And so one of the things that we can take away from that is that we can know that when we engage in Scripture, that when we spend time with the Word of God, that it is living and that it can transform, that it has transformative powers to change us. That's what uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, that we're renewed by the Word. And so the Word begins to transform us. It begins to change us. Why? Because it's living. Why is the Bible different? Because it's alive. That would have been a great place for amen again. So God's Word, which is God-breathed, partakes of God's living character. It is alive. So again, remember, we're talking about what makes the Word of God different. It is alive. Well, what does it mean that it is alive? So we, we don't want to just abstractly say it. We want to put some meat on the bone. So what does it mean that the Word of God is alive? Well, the Word of God will accomplish God's purposes. Think about, think about the very beginning. The Bible says that God spoke, right? God spoke creation. Think about John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was what? The Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God, which is certainly Jesus. And so the Word, what, what does it mean that the Word is alive? Well, the Word accomplishes God's purposes. In Isaiah 55, 11, uh, the Word says, So shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so what I would encourage you in this particular point is that when you are encouraging other people, when you're sharing your faith with unbelievers, when you have an opportunity uh, to encourage other people, use the Word of God, use Scripture to do that. Because Scripture, the Bible says, doesn't return void. I've shared this story before, and I shared it again Wednesday night. Uh, when I was in seminary, we were in evangelism class, and so we were to go out and we were using different evangelistic methods to uh, see, you know, how people responded to different evangelism tools. And one of the ways that we would go out and share the gospel, which ultimately was the most effective, is that we would, we would take the Word of God and, you know, coming from a background of legalism, I'm a professional at the Roman road, and so I can quote it front, back, sideways, whatever. And so we would take the Roman road, and typically when you would share the gospel with someone, uh, you would share, you know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the wages of sin is death. God commit his love towards us. So you would go through the Roman road. And so our task for these, this evangelism uh, opportunity was to use the word of God instead of me speaking that, that I would have the person that I was sharing with to personally read it. And so I remember I was at Wendy's in Appomattox, Virginia one day. It was during that semester. And there was a lady that worked there that had gone outside. Uh, she had stepped outside for a smoke break, and so I, I stepped outside. I had my Bible with me, and I said, hey, can I chat with you for a second? And so, yeah, of course. And so I said, uh, you know, I began to talk with her, and we began to talk about eternity. And I said, well, you know, do you know who Jesus is? And I began to share with her the gospel. And I opened my Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and I said, would you read this for me? And so I handed the Bible to her, and she read uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so I said, what does that mean? And so she says, well, I guess that means that we all fail God. Okay. 
So then I flipped over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And I said, would you read this as well? So she read, the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life. And so I said, well, what does that mean? And she says, well, I guess the penalty of sin is that we all have to die. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so what began to happen is what? The word of God began to be planted in her heart. And I was sharing the gospel, not based on my own personal experience, which we all as believers have that. I was sharing the gospel based upon the living Word of God. And so I began to share with her what God was doing, uh, what God did through the Gospels. And God began to do in her heart what I can't alone do myself. My words don't change people. God's Word changes people. And so uh, the Word of God will accomplish the purposes of which God sends it forth. Think about, think about in, in whatever, I mean, really, this is kind of a weird scenario, this right here. You know, this monologue that's taking, where else in your life do you sit and hear someone yell at you for, an hour once a week. Nowhere, right? But why does that happen? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? And so as the Word is proclaimed, as the Word is read, that's why we are very careful here at Michael Memorial to go through the Word uh, exegetically to make sure that we stay uh, expositionally with the Word, that we're, just, we're not soapbox preaching up here and picking our favorite topic. We're going systematically through the Word of God and declaring the truths of God's Word, not, not because it's uh, you know something that we say, hey, well, here's something I want to talk about today, but it's because God's Word is what changes people. And so that's the means and by which God is using to reach people today is through the preach and the spoken Word of God. And so God's Word will accomplish God's purposes. And so my encouragement would be when you write a letter to someone, when you text someone, when you call someone to encourage them or to invite them, use the Word of God because God's Word does not return void. So, number one, what, what does it mean that it's alive? Well, it accomplishes God's purposes. Number two, uh, the Word created the universe and all that is within. Psalms 33.3 says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Simply by a Word, God created the universe. And so, God's Word is alive because it, it, its purposes are accomplished. It creates things. Uh, it created the heavens. God's Word created the heavens, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5, which is very similar to Psalms 33, 6. So God's Word created the universe. It created the heavens. God's Word upholds all things. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by what? By the Word of His power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the Word of God upholds all things. Next, the Word of God brings justice. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 5, Therefore I have uh, hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. So God's Word brings justice justice. Again, what does it mean that it is alive? Well, it cleanses the church. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 and 6 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, which is the church, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So the Word of God cleanses or sanctifies the church. Uh, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your Word. Your Word is truth, which leads us to our last one, is the Word of God. Why? What does it mean that the Word is alive? Well, it sanctifies. 1 Timothy 4, 5 says, For it, made, it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. So the Word of God is alive because it accomplishes God's purposes. It creates, it sanctifies, it upholds, it brings justice, and it cleanses the church. And so it's active. It's living, according to Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And so if it is alive, well, what is the proof? If that's what it means to be alive, well, what is the proof that God's Word has life? Well, all you have to do is look around. You see, if you look at our church today, and you look at uh, the fact that over 60 people, 60, 60 people came to faith in Jesus Christ through the book of the book of John study, that the last Sunday of every month is designated for baptisms because every single month God redeems someone, that God reaches out and saves someone through what? Through the spoken word. And so what is the proof of God's Word having life? Well, God's Word brings life to dead sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5 says this. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So God's Word brings life to dead sinners. Do you know anybody, just raise your hand, do you know anybody who has was far from God, who got saved, and they're radically different. You know anybody like that? Raise your hand if you know somebody like that. Yep. There are people, maybe you, right? Maybe you in this room, that you've been radically saved. There are people in our church here in just the last few months that have been radically transformed, that were completely different than they are today, that God has transformed them into who He is making them to be. And so God's Word brings life to dead sinners, uh, Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so uh, what is the proof of God's Word being alive? Well, it, it gives new life. And number two, God's Word also brings restoration and renewal to believers. How many times have you been uh, defeated, you've been discouraged, you've been beat up by sin or circumstances in life, and you went to the Word of God and God brought encouragement to your life? Has that ever happened to you? You see, in Psalms chapter 51, the Bible says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. What, who is writing and why are they writing? David's writing here. and David has just made a giant mistake. And so David goes before the Lord, and we get insight into what David is writing here. And he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So as believers, we still fail. And because of that, we need restoration and we need renewal. And so David writes, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so for believers, what God's Word does is it brings restoration and renewal. You see, that's one of the great things about D group. There's, we've said this before, but there's a lot of different uh, Bible studies out there that are good. And we can learn from them. But they're not life-transforming. Only the Word of God is life-transforming. And so that's why every D group spends time in the Word of God. 
and talking about what the Word of God says and how the Word of God transforms us and confronts us and convicts us and challenges us to change into who God has created us to be. So the Word of God has life. You know, the, the proof of that is anything that has life engages the environment. It exists within. It engages us. There's a question written immediately after that. History books and literature are readily acceptable in public schools, yet the Bible is not. Why? I mean, if it's just any other old scripture, if it's just any other old literature, if it's just any other old writing, what does it matter? I mean, the history books, you know, I went through school, I was educated you've been through school you've read all the history books and they talk about many different things and nobody's in an uproar about all the things written about Adolf Hitler he was a terrible guy nobody cares about that right nobody cares about Christopher Columbus or Amerigo Vespucci or nobody cares about uh, Abraham Lincoln nobody's you know trying to get all that removed from history and said hey listen we we can't study that Christopher Columbus guy he, he just we got to get that out of there. Anything written about him, we got to remove that. Nobody cares about that. But yet, we have to get the Ten Commandments out of the courthouses, right? We can't have the Bible in school. Why would you care? If it's not real, if the atheist doesn't believe that God exists, then why are they concerned about the Word of God that talks about the God that they don't believe exists? What does it matter? Who's boycotting unicorns, right? Nobody. Nobody's out upset about the Easter Bunny. But yet, all of a sudden, we can't have the Word of God. Why is that? Because the last point, anything that has life engages the environment in which it exists. And the Word of God has life, and so it engages the environment in which it exists. And people aren't comfortable with that. You see, as we talk about God's Word, we talk about the reality of what it does. It brings life to those who receive it. To those who reject it, well, just like the rich young ruler, they go away sad. So number two tonight, God's Word not only brings life to those who receive it, but God's Word also causes action to those who apply it. God's Word causes action to those who apply it. In Hebrews chapter 4, here in verse 12, the writer says that it pierces to the division of the soul. The Word of God pierces. So the Word pierces or it passes through to the heart of who we really are. You see, when, when you and I read the Word of God, we're not examining the Word of God. What actually is taking place is that the Word of God is examining us. Because, again, remember, it's living and active. And so as, the, as we, are, uh, we encounter, we engage the Word of God... What happens is that the Word passes through everything that's uh, the facade in which we live, the, the fake that's around us, the, uh, the aura that we may present that may not really be who we are. The Word of God gets past all that. And the Word of God goes right to the very core of who you are. That's why a lot of times people don't spend time in the Word of God is because they're afraid of what the Word of God may do to them. It's true. So the Word passes through to the heart of who we really are. You see, verse 13 uses the word 
uh, judge. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but we're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we we must give an account. So he's talking about judging here, which means to assess or to critique. So the word critiques us. The word assesses us. It passes through uh, the outer shell that we present in our life, and it goes to the core of who we really are. You see, James talks about this. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, and for he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgetting what he looks like. You see, when we engage the word of God, it passes through all that, and it gets down to the very core of who we are. It exposes the depths of our hearts. It reveals who we are when no one else is listening. The slideshow of your brain, the Word knows. You see, the Bible says in verse 13, no creature is hidden from His sight. There's nothing that God doesn't know about you. And so the Word exposes the depths of our heart. That's why the Ten Commandments aren't invited into the courthouses across America. is because it exposes the reality of who we are. You see, the Word of God has the ability to pierce even the human personality. People say, well, you know, I was just born this way, so that's just why I act this way. Well, you know, I'm, I'm too far from God. God can never save me. I've done too many bad things. Uh, you just don't understand all the things that have happened in my life. Well, the Word here says that it is living and active, and it pierces to the division of the soul and of the spirit to the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. So if it can get to that point in your life, I'm pretty sure it can get past some superficial personality trait that's bad in your life, right? And so the Word has the ability to pierce even the human personality, and so this proves that the Word of God penetrates through even the thickest layer of sin. I mean, if there were anyone who would be categorized as a sinner. All of us, of course, have fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul himself said he's the chief of sinners. He was a murderer. He killed Christians. And yet yet God confronted him and saved him. So this proves that God's Word penetrates. So the emphasis here is on the power of the Word to penetrate and to expose the inner heart of man. So what the writer in verse 13 is saying is, look, The Word of God knows everything about you. So whether you admit it or not, God God already knows. And so when you stand before God, no creature is hidden from His sight that we're all naked and exposed to the eyes of Him of whom we must give an account. The word exposed, the the word that's written there, it gives the word picture of the sacrifice uh, of the neck being pulled back right before uh, the throat is cut. That is the word exposed that is used here in verse 13. Listen. As much as we want to think that we're in control and that we're hiding things from God, that God knows absolutely everything that there is to know about us. And so the Word of God penetrates and it exposes the inner heart of man. So a few years ago, uh, we, this has been several years back, we, uh, we were here at Michael. We hadn't uh, been here long and so we, had, we were out in the community and ran across some people and so we... Uh, developed a relationship with them and uh, began to invite them to church. And so eventually they came. And so they came to church one day and uh, they sat over here with us. And, you know, we uh, sat in the service and 
uh, Tony was preaching, Pastor Tony was preaching, and so about three-quarters of the way through the service, um, the, the guy that was with us got up, so, he was sobbing, crying, and he got up and he left the service. So I thought to myself, well, you know, something must be going on, I should probably go see what's up. So I left the service and I walked out and a grown man just weeping, crying, and I said, hey, uh, man, what's going on? And he said, you told him, you told Tony everything about me. And I said, I, what are you talking about? And he said, everything that he said today is my life, everything that he said. You told him everything about me. And I said, I haven't spoken your name to Tony. I have no idea what you're talking about. And so here he's just sobbing, crying. I mean, he's, you know, crying. I mean, it's crazy. And I said, look, I, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds like to me that God is trying to speak to you. And uh, he's like, no, no, you told him. And I said, well, look, let's, let's do this. Let's hang out out here. As soon as the service is over with, we'll go talk to Tony. And so we stood outside. The service was over with. I think uh, Starting Point was canceled that day because Tony was in the conference room by himself. And so we walked in there. And I said, hey, um, he, he needs to chat with you. And so they spent the next hour chatting about whatever it was that God was dealing in his heart, and he left. And I've seen him once or twice here at the church since then. This was years ago. You see, what happens in our life is that when the Word of God penetrates and exposes our heart, we have a choice. We can do one of two things. We can either rebel or we can surrender. You see, I mean, what are the odds of you showing up somewhere and everything that's spoken is directly to you? I mean, if that's not proof, what is, right? And so the choice is, well, I'm going to rebel, I'm going to run from that, i.e. the ten spies, or I'm going to surrender. I'm going to believe that God is who He says He is, that God will do what He said He would do, and I'm going to trust that. You see, that's what the Word of God does, is it causes action to those who apply. And so when you're confronted with the Word of God, when believers hear the Word of God, what happens is that we're driven to action. That's why on the back of your sermon, guys, that there's application questions of how you can take the information of which God has revealed to your heart, and you can apply that to your life. And so it causes us, it motivates us to do something. But for the unbeliever, guess what it does? It causes action. That there's going to be a point in your life where you're confronted with the reality of what the Word of God says, and you have to do something about it. And just like the rich young ruler, millions upon millions, they turn and they walk away sad because they're not willing to surrender. Would you surrender to something that's not alive? Well, no, you wouldn't, but you surrender to the Word of God because why? Because it is living and it causes action to those who apply it. You see, it takes supernaturally discerning agents such as the Word of God to sort through and to expose what is of the flesh. And so in our own lives, we have to know, well, how do we know what it is that God is revealing to us? Well, it's through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so just for encouragement here as we start to wrap up, if we trust God, the Word will enable our hearts to obey God and to claim His promises. 
Talk about the absolute worst snafu ever is getting to the edge of the promised land and saying, no, I don't think I believe we could take it. After all God had done, we have to simply trust the Word of God. And so just as Adam and Eve were exposed because of their sin and they were naked before God, so does the Word of God expose us for who we really are. We are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. That's what the Word of God does. It reveals the inability of man to reach God. From Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 6. I mean, you can go all the way uh, through the New Testament and, and all the letters that Paul wrote saying, look, quit trying to do it yourself. Jesus is sufficient. And so the Word of God exposes that for us. And so as we leave, then how do we approach the Word of God? How do we approach the Word of God? Well, I want to give you just a few things here as we leave. Remember that you are handling God's Word. It is not your Word. So here's the, here's the reality of that. There's going to be people that don't believe what the Word of God says, and that's okay. It is God's Word, and it has stood the test of time. It's the bestseller of all time, not because I promoted it. I'm not the chief marketing agent for the Word of God, and neither are you. God does, God's Word doesn't need to be defended. It can defend itself. We simply get to participate in that. But it's the Word of God on its own, and it has the ability to stand on its own. And so don't think that when you go out and you share the gospel that you've got to defend what the truth of the Word of God is. You don't. Listen, if the world doesn't believe, that's okay. It doesn't change the reality of what God's Word says. Just because Oprah says that there's more than one way to Jesus doesn't change John 14, 6. I can still read it and believe it with the truth and the reality that Jesus said it and he declared it and I trust it, so it must be true. Who cares what anyone else believes about that? If they don't believe that God's word is true, that's okay because it's not your word and it's not my word, it's his word. And so I just simply rest in the fact that God wrote it and it stood the test of time and so I don't have to prove it to be true. I just simply have to believe it to be true. Number two, as a messenger, we are simply messengers. We're not the originator of the message. So we just simply go out and we disseminate the truth of God's Word, that we live in the fact of that, that God loved us, that He sent His Son Jesus to die for us, that because of the forgiveness of sin that Jesus offered on the cross, being the perfect sacrifice, that through the forgiveness of that, I can receive eternal life and spend eternity with God the Father, that I don't have to be separated forever. I'm simply the messenger because of what Jesus did. And I just have to say, look, this is what Jesus did for me, and he can do the same thing for you. How do I know that? Because of the Word of God. I'm a sower. I'm not the source. My job is to simply be uh, the, uh, the conduit for the gospel. Remember, as we talk about D groups, that the gospel came to you while it was on its way to someone else. And so what I'm simply doing is sowing the seed of the Word of God. I remember when I served in Virginia, there was a, uh, there was a guy that went to our church, and every time he would pray, he would pray the Word of God. So he would quote Scripture after Scripture after Scripture as he would pray. And he said, you know, I asked him one day, I said, hey, well, you know, it's interesting that you do that. And he said, well, the Bible says that the Word of God will never return void. And he said, my words will fail, but God's Word will last forever. So I'm a sower. I'm not the source. I'm a steward. I'm not the owner. Everyone in this room has probably got 10 copies or more of the Word of God. What does that mean to you? How precious is the Word of God? 
How, how, how much importance do you place upon your time in the Word of God? Is it reserved in which nothing can stop it? Or is it just simply contingent upon the circumstances of your life? You see, we should be good stewards of the Word of God. That God has given us the inerrant written Word of God. That all the fragments, all the 5,000 plus fragments that were found, did you know that 95% of all of those fragments that were found were exact replicas and the 5% that were not exact replicas were just an extra letter on a word or a different punctuation mark? That 100% of the theology and the content was exactly the same. And so God has given me this inerrant word of God, all 66 books. And so my job is not just to sit around and to study it and to learn and be an expert on it, but it's to take the word of God into the world in which God has planted me, into the workplace and the circle of influence that God has given me, and let it do what it does, that it doesn't return void, that it accomplishes its purposes, that it upholds the kingdom of God. Do we revere the word of God that way? We should be good stewards of the Word of God, that wherever we may go, that the Word of God may go before us, and that when we speak, that we ought to speak words that edify and magnify the Word of God because of what God has given us. We should be good stewards of that. So does the Bible sit on your back seat during the week and you bring it out on Sunday, or do you love the Word of God? Do you spend time in the Word of God? Do you revere the Word of God? Are you a good steward? You see, we don't need to add to it. We don't need to rearrange it. We don't need to take away from it. Many religious groups have attempted to do that and have done it. And all they've done is they've created something on their own. They haven't changed the Word of God. God doesn't need me to change anything about it. It's perfect. It's inerrant. You can't change perfection. And so what do we need to do? Well, what's our takeaway tonight? We just simply need to obey it. We just need to obey the Word of God. So I hope that gives you some encouragement tonight about the Word of God. I hope it gives you some information about what the Word of God and how precious the words that the Lord has given us through Scriptures, that it encourages your heart that over 1,500 years Many different authors, 44 different authors, work together through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to deliver the perfect Word of God. That there is absolutely zero reason for us to doubt or question what God has done. That the Word of God critiques us, that it assesses us for us to become who God wants us to be because it is alive. So my challenge to you is go out and apply it. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the reminder of what your word is. Thank you.